Steve had a little trouble with the announcements there with uh, Brenda's name, but he has a good excuse. I know for a fact he's on drugs. <laughs> it's that dreaded z pack I think. <laughs> uh, we're glad, glad that he and Ella are feeling better and able to be with us today. Uh, might mention, uh, instead of a separate list, if you would, on the book, if you would just use the CD list and uh, put book uh, there, uh, that will suffice for the uh, Muscle and Shovel uh, book. So uh, that's why we're going to do that, since Janice didn't put the list up this afternoon. <laughs> she had a lot going on. But uh, that way we won't have to wait to put it up for Wednesday night. You can go ahead and sign up tonight that way. That was a good idea on her part, so we appreciate that. But um, if you would, just uh, put book there on the CD list. A um, couple of um, uh, announcements. Um, learned just the other day, and we had not announced this yet, that Wes Garland's wife is having uh, pretty severe difficulties with her pregnancy. And... Um, haven't heard further from Wes, but he uh, sent me a text and asked for prayers, and we have been remembering him in our prayers and want you to do so as well. But uh, she's just 21 weeks along, and some developments have uh, occurred that are not positive in that pregnancy. So uh, please pray for Wes and Brooke uh, Garland uh, that all will, uh, will go well, and ultimately everything will be fine with her and with the baby, if God wills. Uh, also, I was just uh, really shocked this afternoon to get an email from a friend in Maryville, Anna Tittle, who had gotten an email from Brenda Rutherford that uh, Rod and Brenda's son, Brett, who is in Tasmania, uh, uh, working as a missionary there, uh, may have brain cancer or has suffered a stroke. They're not certain which yet, but he's having trouble walking, riding, driving, and if it is brain cancer, they say it will have, it means it has moved to the brain from another location, they think. So they're not certain yet until they can do more, uh, more tests. But Brett Rutherford, um, fine young man, very fine gospel preacher, missionary there. Um, Brett is probably, I'm not sure Brett's exact age, but I imagine in his 40s, most likely. And... Um, uh, so please, uh, please remember uh, this family. We have uh, been involved financially uh, with Brett and uh, Joe Rutherford in helping them financially in their work, and they're worthy of support. They're a fine family, and it's just heartbreaking uh, to uh, hear this. We just pray fervently that uh, it will not be as serious as they suspect it may be and that uh, Brett will uh, fully recover. So please remember the Rutherford family. Uh, in your prayers. Uh, Brenda had asked in the email that was forwarded to me for prayers, and I tried to call them this afternoon, but then it occurred to me that they're still in Gatlinburg. They live in the Knoxville area, but he preaches in Gatlinburg, uh, Rod does, and um, it, it occurred to me when I called that they were spending the day up there, but I did leave them a voicemail and told them how much we love them and that we would be announcing tonight about bread and praying for them. So please uh, uh, keep this good family. I know you will. Uh, in your prayers. We are continuing uh, tonight our study of the great 119th Psalm, a powerful psalm on the Word of God. 
And uh, basically the designation we have given to this psalm, as you can see, is that it exalts the Word of God. Uh, in the verses that, uh, are, uh, that comprise this psalm, uh, the Word of God is mentioned in virtually every verse. There are very few lines that do not contain something about the Word of God. And yet, as we have pointed out, it is not repetitious at all. It is given by inspiration, and uh, it is without needless repetition, obviously, and gives us so much beautiful insight into the power, the poignancy of God's holy Word. And as we said earlier, as we began the year, or near the first part of the year, we wanted to emphasize in this year uh, evidences, internal and external, for uh, the inspiration of the Scriptures, for the existence of God, for evidences in general, some, some special emphasis in this area because of the uh, frontal attacks that are much more prevalent in today's world than I believe they have ever been. And we certainly need to, as Peter admonished us, sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and we need to be ready always to give an answer to those who ask of the reason of the hope that is in us, and yet to do it with meekness and fear. We mentioned, but by way of brief review, that this is an acrostic psalm. And in this acrostic psalm, there are 22 paragraphs, all representing the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, each uh, paragraph has eight verses, and in each of those eight verses that comprise the paragraphs, every verse begins with the particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet that is being uh, dealt with in that paragraph. Tonight we're looking at verses 65 through 72. And so you may have a heading in your Bible that is transliterated T-E-T-H. That is that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I know nothing about Hebrew but that is one of the letters of the uh, Hebrew alphabet. And if we were looking at this in Hebrew, we would see that every one of these verses from 65 to 72, every one would begin, would begin with that letter from the Hebrew uh, alphabet. We don't know why uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write in this way. Perhaps it's a mnemonic device, as we said, for the purpose of memorization uh, and to um, embalm this great truth. Uh, in the minds of its readers, because it is great truth indeed about the all-sufficient and all-powerful Word of God. And although it was written at a time before the final and better testament of Christ came into existence, it nonetheless exalts the Word of God as a whole in a way that has application to every part of God's Word, Old and New Testament uh, alike, because all of it is inspired by God. And so verse 65, the psalmist writes, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. You have dealt well with your servant. You know, not only do we rejoice that God has dealt well with us, we should rejoice that God has dealt with us at all. And as we think about the fact that the God of heaven the awesome God of this universe, a universe that is virtually unknowable from the standpoint of its expanse, from the standpoint of, of, its, uh, of its power that it represents, that it demonstrates the power of an almighty creator, uh, 
it, uh, it, is, it, it boggles the mind to even contemplate uh, the universe. I heard just the other day that I think two or three new planets have been, uh, have been discovered. Pluto was downgraded. It lost its status as a planet not long ago, but there have been some new discoveries of, uh, of new planets, things that, um, that man is still discovering about what God uh, in his power, his infinite power, in his omnipotence, has created. And we've asked the question before, why would God create a universe that is so expansive, so awesome, so, uh, so impressive, and then place within all of that the earth and the inhabitants of the earth? Why would he, why would he, why would he uh, create a, a universe so expansive? I believe... I believe the logical answer is that it demonstrates to us here on earth the kind of power that the God whom we serve has, that he is infinite in power. And so when we think about that kind of power, the fact that he's dealt with us at all indeed should humble us and make us extremely grateful. Well, there's another psalm in which that very kind of thought is expressed. If you remember, if you go back to the 8th Psalm, beginning specifically there with verse 3, you remember what the psalmist wrote there? When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, then he asks the question, what is, my, what is man, verse 4, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? The psalmist says, when I just consider the moon and the stars, let alone the universe that we now know so much more about than man has ever known, when I consider all of this, I have to ask, what am I? who am I? Who am I? What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And have crowned him with glory and honor. Oh, is it any wonder then that the psalmist would express it as he does here in this verse we're examining. You have dealt well with your servant. Not only have you, have you dealt with us, God, but you've dealt with us well. And obviously that's what we would anticipate. Because he is a God of love. A God who is good. A verse that we'll look at down at verse 68 in just a few moments. But before we go further, I think it behooves us to understand, I think, and appreciate the context in which these eight verses we're looking at tonight are written. The context, the context involves affliction to a great extent. And the fact that the psalmist, even when afflicted, could say what he is saying here in verse 65. And that is, that even in my affliction, God, you have dealt well. You know what is best, and you are still God, a God who is good, a God who does good, as uh, verse 68 will express. But I believe the whole context here in these eight verses deals with God's dealing with man well, even when man suffers, even when man is afflicted. Man should never blame God. Man should never accuse God of not dealing well with him. In fact, Perhaps it would be good to just go ahead and read the remainder of this paragraph and see that context a little bit better. You've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, 
I went astray. See, there's that affliction. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Now we're back to the affliction theme again in verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. So keep in mind, as we look at these verses individually, that they are given to us within the context of the recognition on the part of the writer that he had been afflicted, and yet he understood that even in that affliction, God is good, and that God had not abandoned him, and that ultimately the suffering and the affliction would work for his benefit, that it in fact had worked for his benefit, and he understood that. He understood that. And that's an important, an important principle for us to see. So when he says here in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word, we keep in mind that even in the affliction that he speaks about in two other verses in this paragraph, he never loses sight of the fact that God has dealt well with him. We don't have the whole picture. We don't have the full expanse that God has. We don't see everything that God sees. But we must trust God. We must trust God and believe that even in affliction, God has not moved. God is there with us, for us, and that if we stay with God, ultimately and finally we can see what the psalmist here expresses that he saw, and that is that it was good or that some good was derived from that suffering, from that affliction. But notice, notice another aspect of this verse in 65. O Lord, he says, you've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, but notice this expression, according to your word. Now there's a reassuring phrase. God will always deal with us as his word tells us he deals with man. Every promise that I can read in this book I know is true. I know that it is sure. Every assurance that I am given, every word of comfort, everything that, that God has revealed through his word is sure and is steadfast. And his word will not pass away. Heaven and earth will, Jesus said, remember Matthew twenty four thirty five. but my words will by no means pass away. Now that's a comforting thought in the present time for for those of us who are Christians, that we can rely on his promises. Remember to the uh, apostles in John 14, verse 1, beginning, he said to a very troubled group, despondent group of apostles at that time as they contemplated his departure from them, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then the promise, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is just one of many promises that we have in Scripture, according to his word, that we can rely upon. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, when Paul wrote to correct the misapprehensions that those 
uh, brethren at that time had about the second coming of Christ. They thought he was coming in their lifetime. Therefore, their loved ones who were in Christ had died, some of them had, and therefore they believed erroneously that they had lost their reward. And Paul said, no, when he comes, they're going to be raised. Then if we're alive, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be the Lord, with the Lord. What was verse 18, the final verse, though, of that chapter? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. God will always deal with us according to his word. That's why we must spend enough time in that word to know how God deals with us, to know the nature of God, to know the workings of God, to know the goodness of God, to know his mercy, because he works in our lives through his word. Now, I'm not denying the providence uh, of God, obviously, uh, that's true too, but it is also the case that all of it ties back to the, reassur the assurance that we have in his word. Where do we have assurance that God works through providence in our lives? Through the word. It all gets back to the word. I particularly like this statement that I saw in the treasury of David on this verse, and I wrote it down. The statement is this, relating to what we're talking about here. The book of providence tallies with the book of promise. What we read in the page of inspiration, we meet with again in the leaves of our life story. And that's so true. What we read in the page of inspiration, we meet with again in the leaves of our life story. In other words, we're assured of the providence of God in our lives through the page of inspiration. And we see that providence in the leaves of our life story. Do we always uh, identify the providence of God? No. Can we identify the providence of God? No. Do we know that it exists in our lives? Yes. And that, in and of itself, is very reassuring and should be very comforting. But let me ask you to think about this phrase according to your word in the future sense as well. It's comforting in the present sense for those of us who are Christians. It is sobering in the future sense or should be for those who are not living as they should. But it also sobers our thinking to remind us of how important it is for us to remain with this word because in John twelve forty eight, a verse we have often quoted, Jesus said what? He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The psalmist reminds us that God deals with his servants according to his word, but he will deal with all mankind according to that same word when? When we all stand before God and Christ in judgment. Therefore, again, it behooves us to spend a great deal of time with that which will one day judge every one of us. And so, people can hope against hope, as the expression goes, that surely he's going to do something separate and apart from what he said he would do at the judgment in his word. But where is there any assurance of that at all? It's not there. John twelve forty eight is there. He who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's the written word of God. And so our cry should be that of the psalmist in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. And so we should concentrate our efforts above all other efforts upon learning good judgment and knowledge with the full confidence and belief that His commandments are indeed His commandments, that they are from God. Judgment and knowledge. When we studied the Philippian letter fairly recently, as we began that study, there's a passage in Philippians chapter 1 that ties into the thought here from the psalmist, I believe, on judgment and knowledge. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, beginning, the Apostle Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That's the same thought, really, that the psalmist is expressing here. Expressing here, knowledge and judgment. Knowledge and all discernment. I pray that your love may abound more and more, but tied to what? Remember, knowledge and all discernment or judgment, perception. Why, Paul? That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. It is not, as we have often said, simply knowledge of this book that is going to get us to heaven one day. It is the knowledge of it coupled with the judgment and the wisdom and the application that must come along with that knowledge. The psalmist cries out for good judgment as well as just the knowledge of God's Word. And then we're to that first verse that deals with affliction. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This indicates from the psalmist that there was a time when he rebelled against the word, when he went into sin in some way, when he departed from the commandments of the Lord, and that there was affliction, we do not know of what kind, that sobered his thinking. Every time we're afflicted, are we to believe? Every time we suffer in some way, are we to believe that God has directly brought that upon us? No. The Bible tells us no such thing. Now, we can read in Scripture of times when God directly brought judgment upon people because of sin. We can read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know that it was God's judgment uh, against them. But there are many times when we read about suffering in which uh, no such uh, attribution is given to the God of heaven uh, bringing that about. And we know of one example that is very clear in John chapter 9 where the apostles themselves, some of them, had some misapprehension about this very thing that, that uh, physical affliction indicated some sort of sinful condition and Jesus corrected that misapprehension. You remember? John 9, verse 1, beginning. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, Indic indicating that misapprehension. 
Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, his blindness was not a result of sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus is saying, I'm about to take advantage of the man's blindness to demonstrate my deity. But his blindness was not attributable to his sin nor to the sin of his parents. There's one other text that we could... uh, could look at as well. Remember Luke uh, chapter 13? In uh, Luke chapter 13, uh, in the context where uh, we get the uh, statement that we use so often in extending the Lord's invitation, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, 5. What are the verses that precede Luke 13, 5? There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That statement is repeated in verse 5. Then in verse 4 he says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there in John 9 and Luke 13, we have two examples where the Lord said, don't think that these calamities that came upon these people were because of their sins. Bad things happen to good people. But what God expects us to do is to become better, as we've said, not bitter, as a result of some of those adversities, and to recognize that we're to strengthen ourselves as a result of these things, as difficult and as challenging as they can be. They can intensify our desire for heaven. They can make us stronger in order to face the next adversity that will inevitably come if we live long enough upon this earth. Indeed, God has dealt well with his servants, and we are not to question them. But people have had misapprehensions along those lines all of, for a long time, haven't they? Remember in Acts 28, when Paul, and we talked about uh, snake handling uh, some this morning, but I didn't mention Acts 28.5, really the only example we see of, of some fulfillment of taking up serpents was not somebody deliberately uh, holding a serpent time and time again, but we see in Acts 28.5 when after the shipwreck they were on the island of Malta and they were by the fire, what happened? Remember? Serpent came out of the, uh, came out uh, to, uh, to the fire, came out of the fire and uh, attached himself to Paul and Paul shook it off and suffered no harm. We don't read where Paul saw the snake and said, there's a snake, I need to pick that snake up and demonstrate. No, we don't see that. We don't see that. What we do see is that just what Jesus said, it didn't harm him. It didn't harm him. But initially when it bit him, what did those standing, sitting around the fire say? Well, this man, this man is some sort of terrible criminal. Sure enough, he escaped the shipwreck and now he's going to die of snake bite. He must be a hardened criminal indeed, a rank sinner. That was the misapprehension. And tragically, it's been the misapprehension of many down through the years. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. 
Here there's just a statement about that. But if you skip on down to the verse that we looked at when we read the whole paragraph, a little bit later in verse 71 of this paragraph, he said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. So here in verse 67, he's just making a statement about the fact that before he was afflicted, he went astray, now I keep your word. But down at verse 71, he's making a statement about the good that was associated with that affliction. It is good for me. I see the good in it. I can see the benefit of that affliction because it's drawn me closer to you. God, it's drawn me closer that I may learn your statutes. But here, verse 68, you are good and do good. Looking at these words, you are good and do good, I thought about two other words, essence and exercise. You are good. God is the essence of goodness. And you do good, he exercises that goodness in our lives if we understand and appreciate his nature and his word as we should. And that leads to the next phrase, teach me your statutes. What does that indicate in terms of the psalmist's recognition? That the word of God is good. You are good and you do good. And what you have given me through your word is good. Teach me your statutes because I confess that the statutes of the Lord are good. They are good. Oh, how we wish that all mankind would recognize that the word of God is good rather than trying to destroy it or at least ignore it and not obey it. Well, what about the proud? The psalmist says, The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Remember in the previous paragraph we studied last time, back up at verse 57, I have said that I would keep your words. Verse 58, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Here's that expression of wholehearted service once again. The proud have forged a lie against me. They've smeared me with a lie. How am I going to respond? I'm still going to keep your word. What's the best answer that we could ever give to anyone who would falsely accuse us of anything? The best answer we could give is a life that is lived in harmony with the will of God. An example that is consistent. An example that is pure. That will answer. That will answer. Oh yes, we can give an answer from the word of God to anyone who's concerned about an answer and truly interested in one. But for those who are the proud and who would forge a lie against us, how do we best answer that? By doing what the psalmist says. Keeping the precepts of God with our whole heart. In verse 70, he says, their heart is as fat as grease. The idea here is insensibility. Their heart is just insensible. Their heart is, their heart is insensible because it is, it is filled with worldliness and the pursuit of worldliness. 
They are concerned about one thing and one thing only, and that is worldly achievement, worldly attainment, worldly pleasures. Their heart is as fat as grease. What an expression that depicts the insensibility of those who were the enemies of the writer here. But here's the contrast. But I, what? I delight in your law. I delight in your law. How do we view the word of God? How many times does the psalmist express delight for God's word? I delight in your law. They delight in worldly things, but I what? I delight in your law. It's not as though we say or there are, that our attitude toward the word of God should be, I recognize that this is what I need. And I may not really enjoy spending time with it that much, but I know that I need to do that, and so I'm going to take my spiritual medicine. Would you ever like to take castor oil if you ever took castor oil? Did you ever like to take mineral oil? That stuff had no flavor to it, but it was the awfulest texture of anything. I mean, it just, you know, bad. But you understood that it was good for you in certain situations. What's our attitude toward the Word of God? Is it the case that we, we read it and we study it because we know this is God's medicine, so to speak? Well, no. No. The attitude should be that of the psalmist. I delight in it. And the more we do spend time with it, and the more we understand and appreciate its power in our lives, just like we're talking about on Sunday morning in the fruit of the Spirit, how can one possibly choose the works of the flesh over the fruit of the Spirit if he's thinking at all straight and recognizing that that's where true joy is to be found. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. Where is that abundant life? It's in delighting in this book, not viewing it as something I've got to spend time with, but something that I develop more deeply every day that I live, a desire to spend time with and a love for it because I understand and appreciate what it does for me. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He recognizes that, and we've alluded to this verse already. And then finally, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Well, it gets us back to that medicine analogy, only with a little different concept. It's not like medicine that doesn't taste good but does good, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. When I think about the value of the word, what the word has done, will continue to do in my life if I feed upon it as I should, then the thought of thousands of coins of gold and silver all pale in comparison to what the all-sufficient, all-powerful Word of God can do. These words here are very similar to the words of the psalmist in, in Psalm 19, where in that psalm he talks about 
the fact that the word of God is like honey. Verse uh, 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. There's the similar analogy. But then he goes on, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And he adds, incidentally, there in Psalm 19, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. He doesn't resent being warned by the word. He appreciates being warned by the word because he can stay away from problems that way and he can reap the ultimate and final reward. Who wouldn't view that as being better than thousands of gold, coins of gold, and silver? Because all the gold and silver in the world won't make one bit of difference in terms of our eternal destiny. But what will make the difference is how we approach and treat this book. What about you tonight? Can you say that the law of God's mouth, as it were, is better to you than anything and everything in this world? You can't if you haven't obeyed it in becoming a Christian. But our plea is for you to become a Christian tonight and value, value the salvation that is here more than anything or any one in this world and put all of that put all of that in the background and put this in the foreground as it were and believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ repent of your sins confess him to be the Christ and be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins if you need to come home as a wayward child tonight in repentance and confession of sin we plead with you to come now as we stand and as we sing